I've been thinking uh, about Forrest. Someone reminded me that uh, it's Forrest who used to uh, make sure that the, the speaker had coffee, and, I mean, it had uh, juice and fruit right there uh, every, every week for amen. Um, and I've been thinking too, uh, while we're always sad when we lose someone who is close to us and dear to us, um, Man, I'm jealous of that guy right now. Uh, to be in the presence of the Lord, uh, to be in a place where there's no more crying, pain, suffering. Um, even as we look at this psalm this morning, think about the fact that, uh, that uh, Forrest doesn't have to cry out, where are you, Lord? Uh, when are you going to fix all this stuff? He can see these things now and, and enjoy uh, that blessing. Uh, what an encouragement. As Mike said, I get the great privilege, and, and I... I've been getting more excited all week long about this. Um, I get the great privilege of teaching you guys here at this study for the next five straight weeks. And then actually there's a few more weeks after that all, all leading up till Christmas where I'll be interspersed with George in the weeks to come. When George came to me in the fall and said, hey, would you, uh, or, or in the summer and said, hey, would you, would you help me do this? Would you help me uh, be on the team to teach amen? I right away said, Yes, thank you. Thank you for asking me. Um, I love this. I love, I, I, I've told you before, I get so encouraged about being here. Um, I actually, I feel like my faith, my faith is strengthened by just walking in this room. Um, last night, I woke up at about 2 a.m., and I had this rolling through my head. I'm like, oh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's fall break, and, um, you know, and nobody's going to be there tomorrow. You know, I'm going to get in, there's going to be like 50 guys, but I'll give my best for those 50 guys. And as I'm walking down this hall this morning, I hear uh, this, this low roar of men's voices, and I'm like, Todd, you, you're a fool. Um, they're all here. They're all here. <laughs> of course, we, you know, we grew up in a generation where we didn't know a fall break, so we don't, you know... For us, uh, we, we're still wondering what in the world that's about. It seems like it's just something that's costing us more money for our families than anything else. Um, so probably most of you are here like, I'm just saving money by working and not being on fall break. So that's why I'm, I'm here this morning. I'm excited to teach you for, for uh, the next several weeks. Um, I'm thrilled that we're going through the book of Psalms. Um, I... I uh, I feel like I rediscovered or I discovered in a, in a significant way about 10 years ago the power of the Psalms for our own sanctification, our own spiritual life, um, because there's this combination in the Psalms. I know this is everywhere in Scripture. I know that we see it all places in Scripture. But there's this combination of both our hearts cry, what, what we feel, what our, what our, what our passions are, um, and how that's expressed in our emotions, and then, the, and then the truth of what's going on uh, in God's kingdom, in God's economy. And I know, that, I know that's everywhere in Scripture. I mean, even in a book like Proverbs, you, you can see the heart of, of man and the emotions of all, and certainly those things draw us to emotions, but there, it seems like there's, there's no place like Psalms where those two things combine in such a magnificent way. Um, I grew up, uh, with, and, and it wasn't something my dad did to me. I think I just translated it for myself. I, I remember as a young man uh, thinking to myself, if I was really going to be a man, I somehow had to, had to 
calm or put away my emotions. Those, that's, a, that's a girl thing. Now, maybe that's the environment I grew up in in the world at that time or whatever. Maybe you experienced that too. Somehow I was, I was to, to be a man was not to be expressive in my emotions. And yet I'm feeling constantly in my life all these emotions. Um, and it was a wonderful thing to, to, to discover the richness of that combination that David and the other psalm writers had of taking what, how God had created them as men, as emotional and passionate, and, and mixing it with this deep truth and logic and anchored to the, to the kingdom of God. I, I love that. I love, too, that there's this raw humanity that we see in Psalms. Even in the psalm we have before us today, Psalm 10, there's this raw humanity. We get to see it um, unedited. We're going to see David say things that we maybe have never even dared to say to God. I mean, it bears his soul open. Uh, and yet we also see in, the, in those same exact Psalms, we see the, the, the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God. So those two things mixed, right? I mean, connecting verse after verse together um, in a ways that, again, I know that appears everywhere in Scripture but nowhere is it so vivid as it is in the book of Psalms. And then the last reason I'm, I'm thrilled about this opportunity is it's just, it just means something to me personally. Um, the, you know, we're eventually, I think it's uh, December 13th, um, I get the privilege of, of walking us through Psalm 40, which has been so personally dear to me since I was a 16-year-old because it expresses things that, that gave me words for my prayers and, 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 and words and expressions for, for what I was feeling in deep ways that I didn't know how to express. And, and then over time, ever since I was 16, other places and even what we have before us today, words to say things that, um, that I wanted to say to God, that I wanted to hear from God. Um, and so personally, it means so much to me. So in all those ways, um, I'm going to have a lot of fun on the Thursday mornings ahead of us, and I, and I hope you do as well. Well, Psalm 10 is before us this morning, these 18 verses. I want you to notice something right away before we read Psalm 10, just understanding the context. I want you to notice something that doesn't exist. Remember last week, David made a big uh, point of showing you um, the introduction, the, 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 the prescription on the top of of Psalm 8. You'll notice that there, is, there isn't one on top of Psalm 10 here. It's not there. And you uh, wonder, well, what's going on there? Why we now don't have a context here? Um, there are many scholars who would say that originally Psalm 10 and uh, Psalm 9 were together, much in the same way George shared with you a few weeks ago, that Psalm 1 and 2 may have just been one psalm or put together. So do we know for sure that Psalm 9 and 10 were just one psalm and then they were eventually divided by those who put in the, the markings? While we're not exactly sure if that's true, we certainly know that these psalms weren't thrown into order arbitrarily. It wasn't like they just were placed in a way that, that hey, let's throw in these psalms, doesn't matter what order. So there's a certain value to understanding what happens in Psalm 9 and the order of that. And I want to make sure we have that context. So I, I would say I think it makes sense to me 
that Psalm 9 and 10 in originally were one psalm. But at least we can say there's, there's intentionality with the fact that Psalm 9 is placed right before Psalm 10. Let me just point out a few things as you turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 9 before we read Psalm 10. I want you to notice that David starts out by saying, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount your wonderful deeds. David starts with thanksgiving and he says, I'm going to be thankful for the things you have done. And then he goes on and it says, uh, in basic starting in, in uh, verse 4, it says, for you have maintained my just cause. You've sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. He's saying, I'm going to give thanks because you've been working. And I know that's the kind of God you are. You are a God who works, and you've been working. I'm going to be thankful for that. And then he goes on through all of that. And then verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He's executed judgment. And he, the wicked are snared. It's also, I'm going to be thankful because you're working and you're in control. So you, I'm going to be thankful, God, because you're a God who is working and you're a God who is in control. So in that context, we begin Psalm 10. Let's read uh, this together. Looking at this together, follow along with me as I read. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. In all, and all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. For all, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed and sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the afflicted renounce God? And say in his heart, you will not call to account. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is, who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the context here, David is saying... I want to give thanks because I know you work. I know you're in control. And then David looks at the, the circumstances around him. He looks at the, the rulers of the nations. He looks at uh, the oppression 
of the fatherless and the helpless. And he says, where are you, Lord? And that's where we begin as we look at at Psalm 10. And verse 1 is this honest cry of the heart. It's one of my favorite things about the book of Psalms. And it's so needed that we would respond to God, that we would communicate with God with a raw honesty. And that's what you're going to see over and over again with David, this honest cry of the heart. Where, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? I know that whether or not you've actually ever said that to God, I know that you've lived long enough to have felt that in your soul. To have looked at circumstances around you and said, it doesn't seem like God's in control. It doesn't seem like God is working. It seems like those who rebel against God and those who want to be defiant towards God, that they're working. Now, I want to save this whole discussion really for next week. I know it says on your little schedule there that we're going to be looking at Psalm 14. I got permission from, uh, from, from, from my leader, Mike Stokey. I said, hey, I really want to do Psalm 13 next week instead of Psalm 14. Um, so we're doing Psalm 13. So if you're reading ahead, read Psalm 13. It won't take you long. It's like five verses. Um, but we're going to see and understand there this cry of the heart that exists in Psalms in a way that, uh, that I hope really uh, brings that home to you and I, and I hope actually changes your prayer life in dramatic ways if it's not already been affected um, by that. Because I think it's important that our prayers, our conversations with God have this raw honesty. I think we hinder our relationship with the Lord when we're not honest like David. So David begins with this raw honesty. Where are you? How do you why do you stand so far away? And then David describes why he thinks that because he's looking at this, this defiant man, which is what we see in verses 2 through 11. He's looking at a, 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 an earthly leader who has no regard for God. He's looking at a, a, a person or a group of people who have much power and yet completely uh, operate devoid, not, and not just devoid of God, but in their actions, defiant of God. And they're getting away with it. They're being defiant towards God who is working on this earth and in control, but it seems that they're getting away with it. And they're getting away with it in, in huge ways. And then he goes on to talk about this uh, defiant life, this, this defiant man. And here we have before us uh, five things about this defiant man that I think are so important for us to see uh, this morning. First of all, he says he's arrogant in his thoughts. You'll notice in verses 2 through 4 the words that he's in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek him. So there it is, boasts, prides, arrogance. You have this you have this man, you have this man with, who defiantly says, I'm in control. I, I have no need for humility. Humility is, is for the weak. Humility is for, is, is for the person who can't really lead. Humility is for the person who, who doesn't know how to go out and, and take what's important and, and get a hold of it. Humility is for the helpless, the fatherless, the poor. They need to be humble. I don't need to be humble. 
I'm in control. I control my world. I'm a leader. And this is how I, how I get things done. Well, that's, of course, opposite of what we see even in the leaders of the Bible. You look at a man like King Solomon, who, uh, who, whose, whose kingdom was probably the largest of any, or certainly was the largest of any of the Israelite kings or rulers and expanded the kingdom in great ways. He was known throughout the known world at that time as this man of great wisdom. People actually came from, from so far away just to come hear his wisdom. What did he have to say about pride and humility? Turn in your Bibles just a few pages over to Proverbs chapter 11. Here's just one thing that King Solomon says about this. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. So the opposite in the Bible is if you want to lead, if you want to have wisdom, you embrace humility. But what this defiant man says is now that's weakness. That's foolishness. That's for the person who doesn't have wisdom. King Solomon says, watch out. With pride comes disgrace. And certainly, we've even, we've even known that in, our, in our, the history of the world. Um, I can't remember who said this, but uh, said, what, is the, um, what, what would be one of the greatest wonders ever of the world? What would be one of the greatest miracles? And, that would, and this person said, if a tyrant actually got to live to be an old man. The reality is, even in our understanding of history, most tyrants we've known throughout history have actually been put to death and never got to die of old age. Um, with pride comes that disgrace. And this arrogant man is, is defiant. And I want you to notice one other thing before we move on to the next point. I want you to notice in verse 3 it says, He boasts of the desires of his soul. That word actually, that phrase there, desires of his soul, it means this. Not that he boasts of the desires of good things, but of base things, of shameful things. The Hebrew word there really has to do with that. He boasts of things that are shameful, even sexual. He boasts of his sexual conquest, his, his base desires, his, his desire to to take and exploit. And he talks about them. He laughs about them. He jokes about them. He's arrogant. He doesn't think that it, that it matters that he would speak like that. In fact, he finds it, he thinks everybody will find it funny and will see him as a great leader if he talks like that and shows himself uh, to be unashamed of things that he ought to be ashamed of. That's the arrogant man. Not only that is he arrogant in his thoughts, but letter B there, he's confident or he's trusting in his prosperity. He's trusting or resting in his, his ways are prosperous at all times, which is so irritating, isn't it? It's both convicting to us because we live at a time where we've experienced, all of us in this room, some level of prosperity. We're living, regardless of what your salary is or, or what your job is here, 
we live at a time and in a place in history where we enjoy some of the pleasures of prosperity. Prosperity is often important to us, so there's a certain conviction there. But we also notice, notice that those who seem to act with this arrogance, it's like they don't, they don't ever get what's coming to them. In fact, it seems the opposite. It seems like they get to, to prosper. It seems like they get to keep enjoying it. It seems like their power is expanded. It seems like their, their wealth is expanded. It seems like they're, they're getting away with it. And, and as a result, that becomes a key indicator of whether or not they're okay. So prosperity becomes this key indicator. If I'm prosperous, if we're prosperous, then everything's good, right? Doesn't matter if I'm arrogant. Doesn't matter what's going on. I'm prosperous. Everything's good. I, I, I know some of you... Um, I don't, I don't have, a, I, don't, I don't even, I, I'm probably, my 401k has some stocks. I have no idea. Um, I've never, I don't know if I own a stock. Uh, maybe I do. Some of you are horrified right now thinking, you, Todd, you should or you should know. I just don't know. Um, uh, I wouldn't even know how to buy one. But it's fascinating to me that, uh, that 20 years ago we're, we were like, oh, is the Dow going to reach 16,000? And if it does, that would be amazing. It'll never get higher than that. And wow, we were flirting with 27,000 yesterday. At, at, at 10.25 a.m., it reached uh, 26,951. Um, you know, it never made it to 27, but maybe today, you know, whatever. And what happens? What do we think? Of a tendency, certainly in this country, prosperity is our key indicator of whether or not everything's okay for everyone. As if the Tao is an actual measurement if everything's okay with everyone. Listen, you and I have friends, close friends, who live in places in this city where, where the up and down of the Tao has no indication for them of how life is going. And yet it isn't it, isn't it at times this temptation to, to fall into this, like this defiant man, that prosperity would define whether or not we're okay. Prosperity will define whether or not things... And, he's, and this defiant man, this man without God, that's what he rests on. That's his key indicator. I'm prosperous, therefore, therefore I'm good. And I can continue in my arrogance. Not only that, but if you look at verse 6, letter C, he's convinced of his invincibility. Absolutely convinced of his invincibility. He says there, and this is some pretty profound words, verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And of course that fits in his arrogance. He's, he's got in his heart this arrogance of, hey, I'm a leader. I don't have any time for that humility. I'm prosperous, so now therefore I have power. And I've got resources. And you know what? The up and down of the Tao, it doesn't really affect me. I've actually uh, made myself immune to even the problems that that lesser man would ever have. And I'm untouchable. And so he trusts in that invincibility and he says, I can't be moved. No one can mess with me. I'm, I'm, I'm in control of my own kingdom. I've stored up enough resources. I've developed enough power. I've made enough connections. No one can touch me. 
I'm, I've, I've worked hard to fence myself from any dangers in this. And I'm trusting and I'm resting in that. I don't need God. Why would I need God? I actually had a young man. He's, he's a believer now. Praise the Lord. But he at the time was, I guess, 21 years old. And uh, one of our campus outreach staff was trying to, to minister to him, share the gospel. He had actually grown up in our church, not this church, a different church. Um, and uh, he actually said to this campus outreach director, You're, you keep trying to share Christ with me. Listen, I, I honestly don't need Jesus. You know, my dad makes a lot of money. I'm getting this great education at this awesome school. I'm going to get a pretty decent job. I'm pretty happy. I'm not a bad guy. I just don't, I just don't have a whole lot of need for a savior. I remember this CO friend of mine, campus outreach friend of mine, sharing with me that. And I said to him, I said, what, what did you say? that I would have been terrified in that moment that the lightning strike that was going to strike this guy might hit me. You know, like... <laughs> That is maybe one of the most satanic things I've ever heard said. And yet, and yet there's a, there's, a, there's a practical atheism that sometimes creeps its way into our lives, isn't it? Where we gain some power, we gain some resources, we gain some, some connections, and we start to believe that in this area of our lives... I don't really need God's help because I've stored up enough to protect me from anything that might happen. You know, praise the Lord, again, going back to the theme of Todd's never really had any money. Uh, praise the Lord, back in 2008, it didn't, it didn't rattle me too much. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't lose anything because I didn't really have anything invested in anything. Um, but I talked to some of you. I remember being at lunch with one guy, and he was telling me, thankfully, this man was trusting the Lord, older man, almost 80 years old. He's told me just on one account how much he lost. I got sick to my stomach. I didn't even lose the money. And I was like, I, don't, I can't eat anymore. Like, what? How are you smiling? What's going on? Um, 2008 corrected a lot of people's thinking when it came to this trusting and confidence and invincibility. But isn't it crazy how just 10 years later, we're back to that same arrogance? It was just 10 years ago. And yet, we forget and we're like, oh, I'm, I'm good, I'm safe now. Man, I would, it rattled everyone. Anybody who had, had resources that they were storing up to make them invincible. God reminded us all, we're, we're invincible. My, my dad, maybe this is why I haven't stored up a lot of money. My dad said to me over and over again growing up, he said, Todd, you can never be financially secure without the Lord. And I've now understood what he meant. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You cannot be financially secure without the Lord. Not, but this defiant man says, nah, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm not, I won't be moved. I'm immovable. It goes on, verse 7. 
letter D, he's corrupt in his words. So, and this just makes sense, doesn't he? He's arrogant in his thoughts. He's confident in his prosperity. He's convinced of his invincibility. And that leads to just, it leads to this, I'm arrogant in my heart. And I got prosperity to confirm that I'm a pretty good guy and that what I'm doing must be right because it's working. I have more power. I've made advancements. I'm winning. And so therefore, I can say whatever I want. I'm the leader. I can do what, I can say whatever I want, and you're just going to have to accept it. And so, I mean, this is quite a list in verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing, with deceit, with oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. I mean, that's, that's five pretty serious things, and this is just the result of where it goes. And then what does that look like as he works things out, this defiant man, this, this man without God? It says in verses 8 through 11, letter E, he is merciless in his exploitation. He is merciless in his exploitation. Over and over again, we're going to see in Psalms words like the helpless, the fatherless, the widow, basically describing those who, who in, in that culture did not have power or resources. They were, they were truly helpless. Um, they, they, had, they had not been given any kind of safety. They, they were relying on the mercy of those in charge in order to even exist. We'll address this issue of fatherlessness um, because I think it's really important for our, our world today. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit later. Um, but you know, if you do an honest study... If you do an honest study of the history of our prosperity in the United States, one of the sad facts going back 400 years, the sad realities is amidst that prosperity, there is always, there is always in every time this trail of, a, of oppression of someone. If you look back at the history of of just our country. You can go to others and see the same thing. I'm just talking about if you, if you do an honest study and you look at the prosperity that we've enjoyed, it has at every point been at the cost of someone. And that's just the nature of man without God. It's the nature of sinfulness to exploit for our own protection, our own prosperity, those that are helpless, those that we can probably get something out of. And that's what this defiant man does. He's just, he's merciless in exploitation because he thinks this is how it's got to be done. Let me just say a word about this before we move on to the good part about God. I, uh, you may hear me say this too. There's this, there's this big thing sweeping the, uh, the church in America, the evangelical church in America, this, this contrast or, or this... this um, there's a suggestion that there's a contrast between social justice and a gospel-transformed life. Even to the point where, where some church leaders who I respect greatly put forth a document that was called Social Justice and the Gospel. Now, I don't even like the title of it because the whole point of it is that, that these two things somehow are separate. And the reason I don't like that is because when I read my Bible... When you, it, right here, there's no way to separate the care for the helpless and the oppressed 
and the fatherless from a gospel-transformed life. There's just no way to separate that. And I, and I, and I, know, I know where we have a tendency to go. I've had a tendency to go there, but let me just say this. The resources and power that God has given us are a gift from God. That's why I just said God has given us. So I've been given, I've been given resources and power by God. I know in America it's, it's, it's cool to say I, I've really, you know, I worked hard. I pulled myself up with my own bootstraps. Again, an honest study of history in America will show you that none of us have actually gone that much, have gone that much further than our fathers. Without significant help outside of us. That doesn't mean that we don't work hard. I work hard. I work really, really hard. I work really hard to get where I am. But I'm telling you, where I am is a gift from God. It is. It's not me. I didn't do it. You can't, I can't stand up here and say to you, it's mine because I, I did it all on my own without God's help. No, I'm, not, I'm telling you, God was kind enough to put me in this path. So what does that mean? It's a gift from God. I've been given it. It means what every, every gift God ever gives us. God just needs me to be a good steward of it. God just needs you to be a good steward of it. I, you don't need to feel guilty about it. I don't, I don't see any of that anywhere in Scripture. You're supposed to feel guilty about the resources and power that God's given you. I don't see that. You are not meant to... God didn't give you this so you could feel guilty. God gave you this so you and I could be great stewards of it. And so we just need to think about what that means. How do we steward it? We can't think, hey, those poor people, if they just worked harder, they could get where I am. Because the history of America would say they can't. I couldn't. I couldn't. If I had grown up in a certain neighborhood without a dad, and I had no one in my life that had ever gone to college. And you told me, hey, you can either go work at the 7-Eleven for $5.65 an hour, or you can take this package from this corner to that corner, and this dude will give you 100 bucks. I'll tell you what Todd Erickson would do. <laughs> I'd have taken this package to that corner for 100 bucks. I know that. I'm thankful for my father, and I'm thankful for his work ethic, and I'm thankful for that he paid for my college tuition, <laughs> that he taught me those things. What do I do with that? I, I'm not to feel guilty, but to be a good steward. I just need to be a good steward of it. Uh, I need to figure out why God has given me this gift. I don't want to be. I don't want to be like this. Like this defiant man, I don't want to live like that. Um, I don't want to, like it says there in the conclusion of verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he's hidden his face, he will never see it. I want to be careful not to be this defiant man. I want to be careful to not live like this defiant man has lived. Yes, I wholeheartedly believe in God. I'm not going to say with my mouth, God doesn't, it doesn't matter. But I also don't want to say with my life, 
with my actions that God doesn't matter. So I want to be careful not to be arrogant in my thoughts. I want to be careful not to use my prosperity as a key indicator of whether or not things are going right with me and with the Lord. I want to make sure that I'm not trusting in my invincibility and my resources. I want to make sure I'm trusting in the Lord Himself. I want to watch my mouth. Oh Lord, please put a, put a guard over my mouth. Help me not be arrogant and deceitful. I have, I have the same kind of base, shameful desires that this defiant man has. Oh Lord, please sanctify that. I don't want those desires to come out. I don't want to be boastful about any of that stuff. Oh, and Father, teach me. Teach me how to be a steward of the position, power, connections, resources I have. Please help me not to exploit the helpless and the poor in order to protect myself from any of that. And Lord, teach me where I might be doing that and not even know it. Teach me where I might be doing that and not even know it. So in the midst of this defiant man, what does David say? He says, David says, here's this man. And then look at verse 12. He cries out to God and he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. And so here David, in verse uh, uh, point number 3, verses 12 through 15, is the God who sees. He goes, I know you see. David cries out to God and he says two things. First of all, you do see. I know that. Praise the Lord. You do see the afflicted. You do see the fatherless, the helpless. I've got this, I've got, by God's grace and God's blessing, the Lord has um, given us these close friends. And there's this young boy, his name is, uh, his name is Darian. And this kid is so smart. He's seven years old. He's He's so smart. He's memorized things about animals that I never knew existed. Only the problem is he's really struggled to learn to read. And in our school system in Memphis, he's just been passed on. And now he's in the third grade and, and he, he can't read. And so he's embarrassed to speak up in class. And, and as a man, as a boy, as a young, uh, young boy, you know how that would feel if people are making fun of you because they say you're stupid. And he's not stupid. But he's never had a dad in his life to affirm in him any of those things. And so the other, the other day, he got in a fight at school with some other third grader because they were picking on him and saying, you're stupid, you don't know how to read, you're stupid. And he was, he was swinging and he was saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. Now, of course, he's been placed in, in, in a special section because they think, oh, he's threatened to, to kill someone. And I look at this boy and I go, Father, he's going to end up at 201 Poplar unless you intervene. Arise, O Lord. This is what I love, though. God sees Darian. He sees him. He knows his heart. He sees him. And not only that, it says there in, in, in verses 12 through 15, God is going to call to account 
In other words, there's going to be an accounting of those who oppress. And, I, and, and in some ways, we'll see it in this life. And some of that accounting is, is people like me being humbled before the Lord, people like you being humbled before the Lord in our salvation and being convicted of our sin. Some of that's, that's how God in His grace and mercy accounts. But eventually we know the final accounting won't take place until He returns. But, he, it, but it's going to happen. There's going to be justice. Praise the Lord. Those who are defiant and do whatever they want and, and, and are merciless to the helpless and the fatherless, there's going to be There's going to be an accounting. God is going to be known as a God of justice. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God sees. And I know there's some accounting now, but I'm thankful that there's going to be a full accounting. I'm thankful that our friend, uh, uh, Mr. Morgan, he, he, uh, he knows even better than we do. He can see the accounting that comes. It's a God who sees. And then verses 16 through 18 the king who reigns. The king who reigns. And you know what? In these few short verses, it gives us a picture of what a true king, a true leader looks like. So we've seen the defiant man, the one who says, I'm a leader. In verses 2 through 11. And here in verses 16 through 18, we see what God is as a leader. A true king. And it, three things. First of all, says he hears the afflicted. He hears the afflicted. A true king, a true leader has compassion on the fatherless, helpless. He sees them, he hears them. A true leader, a true king, the true king is one who has compassion on the least in his kingdom. Who sees them, who hears them, has compassion on them. Secondly, It says he strengthens their hearts. A true king, a true leader has compassion and gives encouragement and care. He figures out not just how to to fix the problem, but to actually speak to the heart, how to encourage the heart. A true leader sees, hears, has compassion, and then strengthens, strengthens the heart of the helpless, strengthens the heart of the fatherless, strengthens the heart of the oppressed truly cares through great encouragement. And thirdly, he works justice. Once again, it's why I just, I just don't know how in the world that I as a blessed child of God who Christ broke into my darkness, saved me out of my despair, set my feet upon a rock, like it says in Psalm 40, and has made me his dearly beloved son, and I want to follow him. So what is God doing that I need to follow? He's working justice. So what do I need to do? Well, as a son, I need to work justice too. I need to do what my dad does. I need to work justice. So I can't separate those things. I have to figure out what that... The Lord is working justice, and finally he will will work it. I want to work that too. That's what we would want, because that's what a true leader does. A true leader sees and hears. He strengthens the heart, and he gets 
his hands dirty, rolls up his sleeves and works justice for the press, the fatherless, the hopeless. And he reigns forever and ever. You know, Psalm 1, as George said, speaks of this, uh, this certain man, the Psalm 1 man. And as George pointed out rightly, the Psalm 1 man, is, there's, it's Christ, it's Jesus. Well, who is the king here? The king is the Lord. And, and what is the embodiment of that? It's Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth, he saw and heard the afflicted. When, when the woman just touched him who had been suffering her whole life, Jesus noticed. Noticed who touched him. Jesus went to the powerless, to the helpless, and he ministered to them. He, he, he worked justice. He tried to bring uh, what is known in the kingdom of heaven. He tried to bring that on earth. Transform people in all ways. He strengthened their hearts through encouragement. He's the king forever and ever. And he's your savior. And we get this great privilege today to walk out of this room totally free in the forgiveness that Christ has given us. Totally free. Be free. We get the privilege of walking out of this room and going out into the city and living in the footsteps of Jesus. We get the freedom to participate with the King forever and ever. We get the freedom to see and hear the helpless, the fatherless, and oppressed. We get the freedom to strengthen their hearts. We've been given the Word of God. We can strengthen hearts today. And we're free to work justice in our house, <laughs> in, our, in our neighborhood, on our street, in the city, in our workplace. We get to be the agents of redemption wherever we, we step our foot. What a blessing. What a blessing. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and truth of your word. Lord, seal these things to our hearts as only you can. By your Holy Spirit, work that into us. Father, we are, we are sinful and, and broken men, but, but we recognize that you have paid the price for all of our sins. So Father, help us not to walk out of here in shame and guilt, but Father, help us to walk out of here in the confidence of your cross and your forgiveness. And Lord, give us that great privilege of being agents of redemption. Lord, help us to follow in the footsteps of this King forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.